It goes without saying that the internet has completely changed the world. The flow of information has changed. Access to information has changed. With regard to the way that people communicate, everything has changed. Today, if you want to connect with other like-minded people, you can start a group online and quickly grow a community of hundreds or even thousands of people local to you and around the world. You can have entire group conversations in real time. You can have a video call with anyone, anywhere, at any time, and what's happening in one small corner of the world can be broadcast and shared and disseminated to everywhere else in the world almost instantly. This is unlike any time in history. Think about the sheer speed information can spread around the world and the vast amount of information available to anyone, anywhere, usually for free. Access to information, access to knowledge is power. Real power for the masses, power to inform, power to engage, power to inspire, and power to unite. And some governments, some rulers, some powerful organizations, they don't like it. It threatens their plans and it thwarts their will. And since around 2011 or so, we've started to see nation-state internet shutdowns, at least at a large scale, government control over information, and an attack on individuals' digital rights. What hasn't changed are our human rights, and today, a term we're going to discuss in more depth, our digital rights. With us today is Peter Mysek, General Counsel and UN Policy Manager at Access Now, a digital rights advocacy organization operating around the world. Also with us is Doug Midori, the Director of Internet Analysis at Kentic, and a subject matter expert on monitoring global internet activity, including deliberate government disruptions. We'll be discussing the nature of internet shutdowns, disruptions, and censorship, how and why governments choose to do this, and what's going on to protect the digital rights of people around the world. I'm Philip Gervasi, and you're listening to Telemetry Now. Let's get started. So, Peter, thank you for joining today. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your insight, your experience. Uh, before we get started, though, I, I would really be interested in learning a little bit about your background, professionally, of course, but also specifically about your foray into digital rights advocacy. Absolutely, and thanks for having me on, Phil. And uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here and good way to start off the year, I think, by, by looking backwards a bit. I've been in this space for over a decade, and by this space I'm talking about human rights advocacy focused on how new technologies are impacting human rights, and that could be for the for good or for worse. Yeah, I didn't start in this space. I was a big activist, I think, in, in college. I had this orientation pretty early on from, I think, my parents, but also the kind of uh, Jesuit schools I went to, and orientation towards, you know, fighting for equity, fighting for human rights, and uh, trying to kind of identify and have solidarity with and understand my role in this this larger system that is not fair or equal and is built on you know, centuries of uh, exploitation and discrimination and trying to account for that. And so I'm not sure I can point to one little thing. I, I do remember uh, in college spending some time with the Zapatista rebel group in, in southern uh, Mexico, actually, and uh, learning some hard lessons there, one of which was like basically their mantra, 
oh, you like what we're doing? Go be a Zapatista where you're from. You know, we don't need you to, to join us necessarily. So I thought, you know, that was a, a good lesson to learn there. Yeah, you said you couldn't identify one specific thing, but the one that you chose was very interesting. <laughs> yeah. And uh, currently, you are uh, with Access Now as an attorney, correct? Yeah, I'm general counsel. I lead the legal arm at Access Now. We're a global digital rights organization. I've been at the org almost since the founding, uh, over 11 years for me. Um, we got our start, actually, uh, in 2009 during the Green Movement in Iran. Okay, great. Now, I'm just going to shift for a moment over to our other guest today, Doug Mandori. Doug, uh, probably familiar to much of our audience, but Doug, uh, what, uh, just a little bit about your background now, and I know it's a little bit more from a technical perspective, but in this context of uh, global internet analysis and monitoring the activity going on out there in the world. Uh, let's see. So, yeah, so I, uh, my background is as a computer scientist, and um, after I finished my degree, I was in the military. I served overseas and got a strong interest in international affairs. And then that those a combination of uh, the international angle as well as uh, computer science led me to uh, a small outfit called Renesis that did basic BGP analysis uh, for the global internet to multinational telecoms. And we did a lot of work to try to understand, make sure we had a good picture of what was the internet in any given country. And it just so happened we kind of stumbled into this topic by just by the virtue of just having all this data on hand when when Egypt went offline was our first real you know, high watermark uh, for that small startup uh, where you know we had all this already planned you know uh, mapped out of how how does internet uh, how does Egypt connect to the internet and how does that change second by second and that became super useful to try to tell the story from a technical standpoint when it was that particular government shutdown and I've kind of been doing it ever since uh, in some form. Great, yeah. So uh, before we get into that, and I do want to discuss uh, specifically the events that occurred in Egypt uh, over a decade ago, I, I'd like to ask you a question, Peter. You mentioned the words both human rights, which I, I think I understand, but you also use the term digital rights. Is there a divergence there? Are they synonymous? Can you explain that a little bit? Sure, thanks. So taking my lawyer hat off, you know, I probably started with some notion of social justice or you know, activism for civil rights, right? Um, growing up in the U.S. as more common terms, but you know, the human rights does refer to a pretty specific uh, discourse that was catalyzed during the uh, fallout of World War II, and you know, our, our general, at least Western, realization that we made some pretty huge uh, screw-ups, and uh, and that we needed, you know, some sort of affirmation that all individuals have fundamental rights that, you know, actually don't depend on you know, whatever sovereign state decides to recognize them or not. And uh, so that is a, you know, it's a formal discourse. It's got treaties. The International Bill of Human Rights is, is three treaties or so, uh, including uh, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So that was one of the ones that the U.S. really pushed uh, alongside what Russia was promoting, the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. And so those are two main pillars. You've also got uh, the U.N. Charter, again, signed just after the World War II, and 
the Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, around that time as well. So you've got you know this basis in in instruments and law that um, most states have uh, signed on to, and that you know is the the human rights framework that we work with. But you know this was again developed uh, mid 20th century. It's got some visionary language in there, to be sure, um, and uh, I, t I teach that to my students at Columbia University. You know, um, you can find a lot of strength in, in passages talking about, you know, the freedom to impart, seek, receive, share information and ideas of all kinds across borders, regardless of medium, in Article 19, for example. But um, it, did, it did not look forward, it did not really envision a world where uh, there would be powers greater than nation states, um, and it didn't really foresee the growth of multinational corporations again, was, was visionary in terms of the need for free communications across borders, but didn't really um, foresee the internet and, and digital communications, which, you know, scale and you know, across seas uh, in fractions of a second. So that's the work we've done in the last 20 years or so, is try to take what we've been given and um, see how it applies to digital spaces and to you know how our rights to freedom of expression, to privacy, to association, assembly can be interpreted in the digital age, um, how they you know, should be best protected and promoted, um, and then also where the deficiencies are you know, in this framework that we've inherited. As a little background, and Doug alluded to this already, uh, a little over a decade ago, January of 2011, the Egyptian government shut down internet services altogether to put down an uprising, a, a literal protest in the streets, correct? And that was happening to protest against President uh, Hosni Mubarak. And that ultimately led to his resignation. But according to what I've read from some blog posts from both of you and some other work that I've read, that was the beginning of a new era of government censorship of uh, a large scale, maybe geographically large scale, maybe even global, uh, sponsored internet shutdowns. So I'd like to ask, and Doug, you already brought it up, so I know that I'm on the right track here with my questioning. Was this the first of its kind? Did this kind of activity really only begin in 2011 or so? And, and why was this particular shutdown so impactful? I, I sure somebody can come up with an example of something getting blocked prior to January 2011. I'm sure that's the case. Uh, I think it serves more as a symbolic milestone in this space of like, uh, this was a wake up call that got people's attention around the world. I know as being part of the coverage of it, of that incident and uh, working with news outlets all over the world, this really captured people's imagination that, that, you, that this internet service that we're using every second of the day could be taken away and come back. You, know, you don't know when it'll come back. And this isn't, this isn't uh, we take it for granted that it's here all the time. And the fact that uh, someone who doesn't like you might just take it away from you is, uh, seemed like that, that had a real currency. And um, so I think it's, uh, it's a bit of a milestone. I mean, Peter may have a, may put it a different way. Uh, it's, it's not the first time something got blocked. It did, I like, I, I often say they kind of ushered in this era that we're in now of regular cadence of, of governments around the world taking some kind of steps to repress communications uh, to serve their aims. Was that in a complete internet shutdown or was Egypt selectively shutting down applications or specific services or regions of the country? 
Uh, in that case, it was we we consider this a 100% pull the plug on everything uh, connection. Now, just for the technical uh, from a technical standpoint, you know, like initially they had left one ISP up. It turned out that they had a different physical route out of the country. With Redis, we were writing this like, well, what's why does uh, we were writing a blog blogs about this one provider that stayed up uh, for the initial few hours? I'm like, what kind of what kind of customers might they guys these guys have to get an exception and then they got pulled too and, I, and we later we realized they just didn't they didn't know that this uh, provider had another way to connect out of the country uh, from a technical standpoint actually the the routes were pulled traffic was still egressing there's you know we had uh, data stuff stuff was still coming out of uh, Egypt but it couldn't uh, go back in because the B2B routes were gone and Folks, academic outfits that study like backscatter or background radiation traffic uh, uh, or automated things that are just sending, you know, DNS queries don't require a response, so they'll just keep sending out queries. So um, uh, you can see that the traffic continued uh, outbound, but it didn't come back in. That's one method. There's a variety of ways you can take service down. Sure, and I'd love to get into that a little bit more in a, in a few moments. But Peter, I, I want to ask, was this particular, this particular event, did that serve is almost like a like you know those copycat kind of things where other countries saw that and said hey we can do this too now it shouldn't have because it wasn't successful i mean by any metric you know that extreme measure taken by the mubarak regime failed it brought way more attention to uh, what people were saying in tahrir square and the protest movement and he resigned you know fairly uh, quickly after the uh, shutdown started. So um, nonetheless, yeah, it uh, seems like worst practices do spread. And it's something that got the world's attention and soon became like endemic and a little bit below the headlines in a few countries. Um, it became a go-to tactic rather than maybe a last resort, you know, in the dying uh, throes of a regime, it became kind of a standard, even routine practice in in a few other countries. Um, and that unfortunately, you know, didn't go without civil society monitoring. We have great partners in India who tracked, you know, from 2012, 2013 on these events, but it certainly didn't get the global attention that that Egypt shutdown did. Yeah. And I have to, I have to assume that there is some collateral damage to a government shutting down everything. I mean, the government itself operates on the internet, doesn't it, uh, or much of it? And uh, huge uh, services, uh, the infrastructure of the of the country itself, depend on uh, the infrastructure and of the network in the in that country, right? Doug can speak to this further, but you know that might have even been something that's changed over the last decade. I would say certainly after COVID, right? So many more essential systems from banking to health to education to governance do uh, depend on cloud infrastructure and, and the internet uh, maybe a little bit less true uh, in 2012 2011 so one other interesting technical detail of the that particular incident that shut down so the by uh, stopping the announcements of Egyptian BGB routes to the, to the rest of the world since but it was very common at, in those days was that um, a lot of a lot of Middle Eastern countries would you have this dynamic where domestic traffic would hairpin out of the country. Uh, and so the way this ends up happening is you have an incumbent in the country, in this case, Telecom Egypt, that doesn't want to appear domestically to help their competitors. So they want to do everything they can to try to hurt their uh, upstart competitors because they've got a corner on the market. And so one of the things that they won't connect domestically, force the competitor to pay transit to go out to 
Europe and back. And um, uh, anyway, so the that's that's a somewhat common thing tactic that ends up happening. Usually, a, a regulator has to step in to kind of uh, force these provide the incumbent to, to connect domestically with a provider. But the end the result was that when they shut off the international links, they also disconnected a lot of domestic connectivity. Uh, so uh, because it was relying on uh, it would it'd normally connect in like Paris and London, which is kind of uh, maybe a surprising fact. So what did this? What can we point to that this led to? from a policy or an action perspective? Did anything come out of this? Now, you, you mentioned, Peter, that ultimately the, the, you know, the, the shutdown failed in its goal to shut down the protests, but what did it lead to for the rest of us? Yeah, and if I could revise my long-winded answer about digital rights and human rights, um, you know, to, to, take, to take Doug's uh, you know, assertion, you, you know something's a right uh, when it's taken away, right? And it's, uh, I think this was one of the first times that people really realized how directly um, internet access and you know, mobile phone service uh, was to, to them exercising their fundamental rights. And uh, you know, it was taken away uh, in one uh, fell swoop. And uh, that that sense reverberated, and that you know maybe fear even um, of uh, what could my government do? Some times of pressure uh, to me and to to our community's use of these exciting new tools, and um, that is also a lasting legacy. And you know, in the in the following two years, the UN really went full bore into declaring that human rights apply online as they do offline. And that's a, that was a fundamental assertion that came in the uh, aftermath of that Egypt shutdown. Yeah. And you're referring specifically to the uh, UN Human Rights Council First Resolution on Internet Free Speech. Is that right? Yeah, the so-called Internet Resolution. Okay. Yeah. I, I remember reading, uh, in fact, that Cuba and China uh, approved that resolution, didn't they? So I guess... Did this resolution mean anything for the long term? I mean, I can see where we are today with Cuba and China. Yeah, it's uh, it's a resolution that passed by consensus, and um, consensus is hard won at the council, right? So you'll notice the resolution didn't mention, you know, Egypt shutting down the internet, right, and uh, didn't call out any particular country. You know, there's reasons uh, some of these passed by consensus. It, Often, you know, might be a really skillful block or coalition uh, that advanced the resolution. Uh, I think Sweden, you know, helmed this one uh, with the support of, uh, I believe it was uh, Turkey, Tunisia, U.S., uh, a couple other countries, uh, probably Brazil. And then uh, also diplomats, you know, they want to be seen as relevant. And uh, when you, this is one of the first purely, you know, digital focused resolutions at the UN. And, you know, folks probably wanted to be, um, you know, on that train, right, on the right side and saying, uh, you know, look, we, we acknowledge the digital world and we want to have, you know, something, we have something to say about it. Certainly we, we see some progress, but how effective that process, or rather that progress is. Uh, you know, we, we've seen the last decade, 12 years, which I assume is why organizations like Access Now and others exist, to continue the work in a very real, palpable form, not just giving speeches on the floor of the UN, right? So we started off talking about the shutdown in Egypt, which is a complete and total shutdown, except for the one provider, which then was subsequently shut down. But what form have these shutdowns taken over the last decade? We've seen some of that collateral damage of turning everything off, 
So I have to assume that things are done a little bit different, maybe more strategically, especially as the, the internet itself has evolved, the way we consume it, the way uh, it has grown up in the last 12 years. That's right. I can point to a, a new guide that Access Now has put out um, called The Anatomy of an Internet Shutdown, really uh, typifying the technical measures that uh, states that authorities or that telecom operators and others can take uh, to affect shutdowns. And uh, I have to say, too, that the term Internet shutdown, right, was um, it was a conscious decision to, by, by Access Now and the Keep It On coalition uh, that we coordinate, right, to, to coin and push. There are probably, you know, more uh, direct definitions one could use, uh, the terms like kill switch, blackout, you know, blocking information controls all get at um, various forms of censorship, right? But we thought it was was useful, and it has been to have a kind of rallying term um, that is fairly broad. And uh, for us, it uh, in our coalition of you know around 300 civil society organizations, it includes service level blocking. So it could just be shutdown of Twitter, blocking on on Facebook, other kind of messaging apps uh, would qualify for us as a shutdown event. Uh, along with, you know, shutting down mobile towers, you know, nightly, as we saw in Bahrain for a while, uh, or to uh, scaling up, as, as Doug has mentioned, um, BGP manipulation and, uh, and full shutdowns. Right. Ultimately, though, you, you mentioned that it is about controlling that information. You used the word censorship several times. So is there a link between Internet shutdowns, and I'm using the term broadly, and outright human rights violations. Uh, we started off by you defining human rights. And so when I say human rights violations, and then this newer idea of digital rights, I mean an actual affront on a human being's rights. Is there a, a link between these two? Yeah, um, it's, it's an important question and, and we shouldn't just assume. I've talked about freedom of expression um, and freedom of opinion as fundamental human rights. Those are in uh, all the instruments that I named earlier, the Declaration, uh, the Covenant, uh, and it's something that I think we we can feel, you know, viscerally, right, uh, when someone tells you to shut up. Uh, and this this fundamental right in the digital age, it depends on access to the internet. We've lost, right, a lot of the traditional maybe broadcast or other channels to to gain information and to express ourselves. We are forced to rely on these digital uh, channels, and so. Uh, this this space is um, actually essential to the realization of, of that one right, for example. But then, you know, we also see again after COVID, especially um, a host of other rights really being um, directly realized, exercised, uh, blocked, interfered with through through digital technologies. And so that can go to you know, your right to housing, your right to the benefits of science and technology. If we're talking about uh, health and and you know, vaccine. Um, availability and accessibility. Uh, and, and so we look at the range of rights that the internet helps deliver, and we say, what's a proportionate and what's um, a necessary interference with those rights in order to ensure whatever it is, safety and security or other human rights? And shutdowns just fail every time on the proportionality prong. They are broad, blunt, um, they're impacts are almost impossible to fully understand in any case. Um, they reverberate broadly and, and they're just not proportionate interferences. 
So then can we identify a general goal here? Is it just to put down protests, to retain power, control information? What's yeah. the real end goal? So for that, we'd have to know what the governments were actually trying to accomplish, which they're not always very forthcoming about. You know, So uh, first of all, I would ask for transparency from, from the authorities on just what they are trying to achieve by um, shutting us off. But yeah, on the on the available evidence, um, the uh, the impacts to even the right to life. Um, there's there's unfortunately been documented uh, multiple cases where, um, say, pregnant women have been unable to access emergency services if something goes wrong during their pregnancy, haven't been able to reach their doctors um, during an internet shutdown, uh, during a blackout, and have have suffered really uh, horrific consequences and. And, you know, we also see during protests, right, that uh, uh, protesters are put in, in, in harm's way um, when they don't know what's really taking place um, on the streets and they can't access those services they need, their support networks, um, because uh, communications have been th throttled and blocked. So, yeah, there are really egregious consequences, and I would say there are very direct uh, correlations between Internet access and the exercise of human rights. So you've mentioned several different human rights, uh, but the first thing that comes to my mind, the first thoughts that come to my mind when I think of the violation of human rights, and I'm probably not alone in this, is, uh, is imprisonment and the loss of freedoms and perhaps physical violence and harm. And at the very far end of the spectrum, the extreme end, murder and genocide of entire populations. And what you're saying is that digital rights sit right alongside human rights as we've traditionally understood them. And so why? Why are countries still choosing to do this when the data show that this is not a particularly effective method? Uh, is it that it's just a matter of an authoritarian personality exerting power and control for power and control's sake? Is it manipulating elections uh, as a means to acquiring wealth? Maybe it's some combination of all of these things. I don't know. You know, that's a great question. Uh, one of... The emerging um, trends that we're going to note um, in our Access Now report on shutdowns in 2022, uh, which should be out next month, is uh, something that came to came to light last year during the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia, but also in attacks uh, in Yemen and beyond. And that's uh, looking at really kinetic uh, attacks on internet infrastructure. Uh, with the intention of, you know, creating kind of an information blackout as part of a larger scale war. Uh, and this has happened in multiple places across borders often. Uh, and I think that that does go to um, seeing Internet shutdowns even beyond that sense of just, you know, stopping a protest or stopping a form of expression, but really as a form of siege, um, you know, akin to shutting off supplies of food and water or electricity. And yeah, I think Doug has studied this as well in, in places like Syria. I mean, there's been a, there's been a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of these incidents in the last whatever 10 or 12 years. And I think uh, there's probably a handful we could point to and maybe make an argument that it, this was successful in order to try to help somebody maintain uh, power. There was after after the Arab Spring, uh, you know, the war in Syria had gotten going. It seemed like the whole trend had migrated to uh, Africa. Uh, some of that maybe it may have been just coincidental because the, uh, there was a, a lot of elections were coming uh, due around that time, and then some of those in a handful of places ended up being contested. 
people didn't agree with the results. The people who were in power didn't want to leave, and it led to uh, you know some sort of communication repression of one kind or another. And a lot of times, those people stayed in power. Uh, so I, somebody might view that as successful uh, to try to uh, stay to stay in power. So, Doug, how do countries do this from a technical perspective? How do they completely shut down the internet or shut down specific services individually? Yeah, so I guess we've seen a variety of different measures. There's no like single mechanism that they all do. For a lot of developing countries, I guess it depends on the. Um, some of them just go through a single provider. If you take like Syria, it just goes through, uh, formerly known as STE, Syria Telecom. They can just shut the country off in one place, and uh, it makes it pretty easy. Uh, Egypt was a uh, was a case where there was multiple providers of different connections out. They happened to mostly connect through this one exchange in Cairo that could be uh, de-energized, and where um, uh, they could take down these uh, these routing announcements. But it's also <clears throat> we've seen this in uh, uh, be a very non-technical uh, mechanism as well. So in in Myanmar, uh, I knew of at least one provider that had to take their service uh, down by order of a fax. They received a fax, and uh, and had Wait, to fax is an FAX fax machine. I don't think I've even seen a fax machine in ten years. Okay. Yeah, <clears throat> facsimile machine. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think there was uh, there was some something similar in um, uh, or maybe not a fax, but there was at least an order given to I can't remember which Afri- uh, African nation, but there was another one that had a, an outage. And then you know, and, and to the credit of one of the telecoms involved, they they published it. It's like here's the order we got. We have no choice to, but to comply. But just so the world knows why this is happening or who's behind this, uh, we're going to go public with the the, the order that we got. Um, but that's really not always the case that you have that clarity as to what's uh, taking place. So some of those things that you uh, described are technical in nature, which presupposes that there are technical answers, that we can employ some methods of cybersecurity and uh, change mitigation, you know, those kind of things to stop some of these attacks from even being possible. But some of those things that you mentioned were not technical in nature. Yeah, there's. I think uh, for a while there was a discussion of like, oh, well, if we have greater, uh, if we have a, no- a larger number of international connections out of a country, yeah, then right. it makes it harder for the government to, and and maybe it does to some extent. Like it's not just a single place. If you got multiple places, you have to shut services down. But I think in those in those cases, uh, if the government sends an order by fax or other means to everybody involved, it just says. You follow this order, or you lose your right to okay. operate in uh, in the country. It's very hard for a business to not comply yeah. with that, uh, and so they're in a they're in a tough spot. If they don't comply, they may lose all their investment, um, their their license to operate, which is the whole whole thing for them. So it's not an, it's not an easy thing for them to to not follow that. And ultimately, even if they were to uh, continue to operate, they probably would eventually fail where the government would find a way to turn them off and, and they'd lose their uh, license to operate. So that's uh, what makes it a difficult uh, problem. And therefore, I have to imagine that it's uh, that much more difficult for countries where the state and private enterprise are much more intertwined than in some Western countries, right? Is that, I'm assuming that's your experience. I think in those cases, there's no hope of uh, the, the, the government, like Syria Telecom, uh, Texas and Cuba, these guys are definitely, I mean, they're it's one and the same. Uh, they're not going to be going against the government for sure. 
I think in some of these places, there's like multinationals that operate like a lot of the, uh, a lot of the African nations, the mobile operators are, um, yeah, they they operate in many countries and, um, even still they, they, they make a business decision and they may not like it, uh, but they have to turn service off. So, so Peter, how does how, you and an organization like Access Now, how do you deal with it when you're talking about a literal country, a king or a president, a corrupt president? How do you deal with that? Yeah, um, it's it's definitely different strokes for different folks. I think uh, we, you know, try to tailor our advocacy interventions uh, to the context, and that's hopefully and largely working uh, under the leadership of local uh, local partners, local organizations who are invested and who know what works and what doesn't, who've tried, you know, probably a uh, hundred more things than than we can come to them with, and you know, for me at the at the UN level. You know, we've been able to to make some gains, um, and you know, even if we can't issue some proclamation that's gonna um, turn the internet back on in a certain country, uh, we can get at you know uh, the the reputation, the standing of some of these uh, regimes in uh, the international community, which you know you might be surprised um, does actually uh, matter to to some folks that you wouldn't think. Um, and, uh, you know, I can also say as uh, with my lawyer hat on, we've been successful in litigating. And again, by supporting local litigators, these really intrepid kind of often solo practitioners with small law offices um, who just want their internet turned back on. And in places like Zimbabwe, uh, Sudan, um, Iraq, uh, they've been successful um, against, you know, what you might expect. Is that what gains look, you use the term gains, we've seen gains. Is that mm -hmm. what that looks like? Is basically just having the internet turned on, uh, completely open without any filtering or censorship and available. Is that what gains look like? You know, yeah, ideally, um, we have robust access to the uh, open internet um, that we can securely, you know, and safely navigate um, and use to exercise our rights. Um, yeah, in practice, obviously it does get more complicated, right? Uh, if you look at places like Ethiopia, where there's huge problems with uh, incitement to violence on Facebook, on um, social media and messaging, and uh, there definitely need to be interventions by policymakers, by authorities, you know, acting um, under the rule of law uh, in order to, you know, ensure people stay safe online and off. Um, we are, you know, making the case that those interventions should not, you know, and do not include internet shutdowns. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, we want spaces where uh, people feel free to, you know, to connect without fear of reprisal, to speak freely, and, uh, you know, mainly do have access to the internet. As far as success, you know, it is hard to prove the shutdowns that didn't occur. We don't often have government officials coming to us and thanking us for, you know, that letter we wrote or, uh, you know, pointing to some UN resolution as, you know, uh, evidence that they don't have a lot to gain by, um, you know, pointing to these factors as, as influencing their decisions not to shut down, not to take this, uh, you know, extreme action. Um, so, yeah, we're, we are sort of left to, to look at the evidence um, that we do have. Phil, could I uh, jump in here? I, I, I had... Um... You know, like I, I think a lot of times um, when people think of this, uh, this scenario, maybe Egypt is a good uh, model for people's mental model for this kind of thing of an embattled ruler who feels, you know, if you've got an, an embattled uh, 
president that feels they may be imprisoned or maybe even executed if they lose power, then that's a hard to convince a person to back off. Like they're, they may, um, it's hard to make, hard to uh, introduce logic uh, there. Um, but I, I would say there's not every case is like that, and I think uh, it's important to appreciate that there are there are some other scenarios. And so uh, I'll just mention this one that when. Um, Iraq started shutting down their national backbone to combat che uh, cheating on student exams. Uh, I had a good contact within the Iraqi government. Uh, it was basically the equivalent of their FCC, it was this Iraqi CMC. It was a, a good contact of mine, and um, and we were trading notes on what, on what was happening. Uh, we were reporting. This is back to Dine at the time, um, and then. Uh, and he was saying that, you know, within the halls of government in the Iraq and uh, Iraqi, you know, parliament, there's a lot of heated debate over this. Uh, this wasn't uh, a unified uh, front here. And, and they've, I guess, I don't know, they haven't done that. They haven't done a, a student exam shutdown in the last year, I believe. I think it's Syria that's done it. But um, uh, anyway, it just gave me hope uh, that this guy, this guy was really anti. He was lobbying the prime minister uh, to stop this, uh, and um, I feel like in that in that scenario, that's where you know the advocacy work of trying to outline what are the costs. Like he would love to be armed with more information about what are the what kind of damage are we doing to the people and the country because there is uh, it's not a scenario where some like the leader's going to get his head chopped off if uh, he doesn't shut the internet out. Like the there are, there are other scenarios, uh, and that's where uh, work like uh, what Access Now does can make a difference. And violent death is probably a good motivator, in, in this case, in the wrong direction. So how does Access Now balance some of these things that are more nuanced, where you say, hey, we want the Internet to be open and people to have robust access, secure access, but there's also factions that are coordinating and conspiring to do violence well, how do you balance that in, in those scenarios, or do you? Yeah, um, you know, it's a, it's a situation where we don't necessarily try to, we well, we try not to pit rights against each other to say that there's some zero sum and, you know, you're, you get more expression, you know, the less privacy you have and vice versa, right, if, as if there were scales. We do try to um, look for places where where you know rights can reinforce each other and you know, I think that's something that um, I've certainly learned um, around you know discourse on the internet over the last few years is that um, you know you can give people the you know the physical connections put the phone in their hand all you want but you know if the second they go online and identify themselves as as a woman or as trans you know they they start getting uh, you know concerted campaigns of vitriol that is not an open space you know that is not um, meaningful internet access and not meaningful connectivity uh, that's going to foster greater free expression right so it's it is more than just um, you know having that uh, those five bars or that physical um, uh, cable lit. And, um, you know, that's, uh, I've got some colleagues who help um, looking at corporate, you know, policies, looking at the uh, business and human rights discourse, you know, whether uh, these platforms are doing their, um, their best to, to foster 
you know, an open discourse. Um, and then also looking at content regulation. And uh, there's been a lot of work, uh, I don't know if you've seen the Digital Services Act, the DSA in Europe and the EU that recently passed, um, you know, uh, as probably something that's going to reverberate around the world, a lot like the general data protection regulation did, you know, for, for privacy and data protection. So it's uh, it certainly doesn't stop at um, just, you know, keep the internet on uh, it's um, and there are def there have been places where our advocacy our advocates have said you know we're actually gonna hold back on some of this um, messaging we're gonna not hold this event um, at this time in this place um, because uh, actually you know internet shutdown is a threat but there's also there are bigger threats that uh, that are more relevant to our to our local partners for example right and so how, how do you monitor this activity? How do you actually track, and when I say you, I mean Access Now and other organizations that uh, do similar work. How do you track what's going on? Uh, or is there a tip line? Um, and then of course the data itself, which I know that Doug provides uh, through, through some of the tools that he uses. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to, to shout out um, Doug Mattery's work um, at Kentic and uh, and before Kentic as well. Um, as you know, he's one of the technologists that that we work with consistently. Um, that we've built a relationship with of trust and uh, and responsiveness. Um, equally important uh, because you know these fast moving events um, are something that we do try to track and we are expected to to speak to as a you know a global advocacy organization. Um, so we work with the private sector. Um, we, you know, depend on open sources of data like, uh, say, Google's transparency reports, Cloudflare's new radar, um, and we. Uh, but I would say we primarily, um, as I said, work closely with our partners in civil society and uh, independent journalists in country, uh, and that's our hashtag Keep It On coalition. Uh, it's uh, again over around 300 organizations in over 100 countries, uh, and uh, they, you know, use our um, intern, our listserv that we have. They use our uh, tips line. Sure, um, I think it's accessnow.org/keepiton is the web page. Uh, it's it's all methods and um, and more, you know, to to find out when service is being disrupted. Um, what the impacts are, what's the scope, what's the duration, when's it get back up. It's, it's really a scramble with a lot of human work uh, uh, as well as a lot of machines. And we do invite uh, more volunteers to the struggle. And Access Now has a global footprint and a global interest, correct? Uh, in fact, I believe you have offices all over the entire world. And, uh, and you're personally based out of New York City. Is, is that right? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'm in uh, Brooklyn. But yeah, Access Now has a presence in probably at least 25 countries. Um, it's uh, it's remarkable that we have grown so much over the last 10 years. Um, but again, you know, it's uh, it's always in, in partnership with the folks who, who are already there and, uh, you know, face the struggle in a lot of ways more than we do. Okay, yeah. And, and Doug, what kind of information are you providing to Access Now, other types of organizations like that? What is the helpful information from a more technical perspective? Uh, so this is going to be some sort of internet measurement data that either corroborates or refutes, uh, you know, a claim of a of an outage. And then sometimes there is an outage, and then you know we want to try to we may or may not be able to help determine the nature of the outage. Is this was this a submarine cable break or was it a government? You know, there's a lot of things that can go go wrong. Um, you know, in the work that I've been doing for the last uh, 12 years, uh, maybe. 
Peter's got his version of this, but you kind of develop contacts all over the world uh, of like, if I need to reach somebody in this part of the world, I'd ask this guy. And if he doesn't know, or, uh, then he'd point me to the, uh, some other person. So um, within the, I, I've got a pretty good extensive uh, professional network within the internet industry and um, can reach just about anywhere if I need to get uh, some help understanding uh, what took place. It's usually not that difficult. Uh, it's only occasionally that, it, that there's like a, a question mark as to like what what is this, and then uh, sometimes I've done in the past it hasn't happened recently, but we'll see one uh, we'll see an outage in a country and know that this is actually a technical thing, and I'll preemptively <laughs> write to Peter or his staff and be like, hey, this is this is technical. This is you know just just in case you're getting because people you know the people get very exercised uh, on this, and one well, there was one case where uh, there was a submarine cable outage on Eastern Africa. And uh, it actually was a, a planned outage, a scheduled outage that wasn't well communicated, but that the outage took place during the presidential debate in, uh, in Somalia. And it was widely interpreted there as the government just kind of cutting off the discussion. And it wasn't, it was actually like they just hadn't, you know, uh, it wasn't well circulated that this was going to be a planned outage. And uh, uh, and then, yeah, later it was, you know, we were able to confirm that, but we're like, ooh, that's, I mean, a lot of people very, very legitimately believed that this was a, a government outage. I would, it would be understandable why you would think that, but you could see outages up and down East, East Africa and no the Somali government doesn't have the power to take off, take down the internet in Kenya. So, um, uh, anyway, so I occasionally, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say we're doing that a lot. Just every once in a while, something like that happens, and we try to uh, use uh, the the kind of business intelligence and data intelligence that we do uh, that I use in the course of my work every day. Anyway, you can point that at this problem as well. If there's a way that we can help, you know, contribute in something positively, then We'll, we'll do that. So uh, when you say contribute something positively, I'm going to gonna shift over to Peter here. Um, what would you say then, putting you on the spot, I know, but maybe you know this off, offhand, but what would you say is your one-sentence bumper sticker style mission statement? I mean, I'm looking at your website, business and human rights, digital security, freedom of expression, uh, privacy. These are all you know, lofty goals. What, what is that one underlying goal of Access Now? Thanks. Yeah, our, our mission is to defend and extend the digital rights um, of users and communities at risk around the world. I would say in this context, it's uh, to bring all stakeholders together to realize our common good advances when you know, people uh, can dependably, uh, securely, openly engage online and access the information and the resources they need. So, you know, I, I don't know that there's any businesses that do better uh, when their customers uh, can't depend on their internet connection. Uh, you know, any legitimate government is going to want to uh, be able to, you know, spread information that people, you know, can rely on. And all of this, you know, in the digital age depends on access to the internet. So, uh, that 
you know, that's the goal. Um, how we achieve that, you know, I, I do have to say, you know, we are a uh, nonprofit civil society organization, um, and we, you know, absolutely need technical assistance like um, Doug and Kentuck provide. We also do need uh, funding and financial support um, and uh, participation, um, and that can be private, you know, um, these sorts of pings, um, or it can be public. And uh, our conference, RightsCon, uh, which we are bringing back in person uh, this June, is a really great expression of the community that I think we've been able to build. Well, Peter, I'm going to thank you for giving us that perfect conclusion. I, I would not have been able to create one better myself, even after thinking about it for hours and re-listening, so thank you. And uh, gentlemen, uh, to the both of you, this discussion has been uh, thoroughly fascinating to me, at least, uh, especially considering that we've been talking about ideas that really they impact our entire world. They impact the course of human events. We've been talking about kings and presidents and rulers and countries and the millions and billions of people uh, within that framework. So thank you both for joining today. And especially thank you to you, Peter, uh, our special guest today for sharing your experience and insight with us. Much appreciated. For uh, comments, questions, and to learn more, Peter, how can folks find you online? Great. So yeah, it's um, accessnow.org, um, spelled like it sounds. I'm Peter at accessnow.org is my email. I'm also on Twitter at lawyerpants, one word. And, uh, you know, that's me. Um, but, you know, uh, you won't be able to ignore us, I think, once you uh, poke around. So. Very good. Okay. And Doug, Kentick's resident director of internet analysis, always a pleasure, of course. How can folks find you online? Uh, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn and uh, still on Twitter. Uh, so, and it's at Doug Midori. I don't have, I don't have as much wit to come up with a better, a clever handle uh, as some people. Okay. Great, thanks, Doug. And uh, you can find me on Twitter as well at network underscore Phil. I'm still very active there, and you can search my name in LinkedIn. Now, if you have an idea for a show or you'd like to be a guest on Telemetry Now, reach out to us at telemetrynow at kentic.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can also find us online on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.